Hello, and welcome to Standing in the Stream, a podcast for and about creative people. I'm your host, John Lane. Born and trained in Japan and active in the U.S. since 1977, Kazawaki Tanahashi is a calligrapher, painter, Zen scholar, and writer. His pioneering one-stroke paintings, multicolored Zen circles, and East Asian calligraphy have been featured in numerous solo exhibitions, workshops, and conferences worldwide. He has authored and edited many wonderful books, including Essential Zen and Brush Mind. He has contributed several important translations of ancient Zen texts, including The Essential Dogen, Writings of the Great Zen Master, and his latest book on the Heart Sutra was recently published by Shambhala Publications. He is also a peace worker and environmentalist, and as such, a founding director of A World Without Armies. Kaz, I'm delighted to have you on the show. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you for inviting me. So, in, I was recently reading your newest book on the Heart Sutra, which is wonderful, by the way. Thank you for that. And um, in it, you mentioned growing up in a Shinto family and attending a Protestant church, but that you also worked in a Buddhist temple translating Dogen into modern Japanese. What I'd be interested to know, I guess, is how you first came to to Zen practice. Well, um, I was more interested in a kind of intellectual side of uh, Buddhism, I was uh, looking for some spiritual discipline. Maybe uh, I was uh, uh, 1960s, around that time. I think everyone was kind of uh, attracted to existentialism. Mm-hmm. As a beginning artist, I was uh, also very interested. Then I soon discovered that, well, to be a creative person in existentialist world, you have to be in despair or be fully bored. And uh, I don't think I liked the idea. So uh, I was looking further, and then I went into the Master Dogen's poems and writings. He was so positive. And I felt that um, he was like a 13th century post-existentialist. They started from the same point that we were all on death row. And uh, so we have to all die. And then, but uh, maybe Dogen's kind of, uh, suggestion was that we, if we live each moment fully, actually we can live timelessly. So I, I thought it was kind of good for me. Uh, I, can, I can learn more and more about uh, his thinking and his words. So mostly kind of my interest in Dogen was intellectual. I was translating. I was doing uh, the meditation with my translation partner, my Zen master, but um, maybe mostly I was interested in Dogen's thinking and uh, 
writings. And so that was really your introduction, was sort of through Dogen and then through the sitting practice. That's right, yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, maybe, you know, meditation in general, not only sitting practice, but mm. how to uh, face the empty canvas or empty paper. Can you, yeah, can you talk about that a little bit? How is that, how does that work for you? Well, I think uh, because I'm a calligrapher, I can always, I have some, you know, I can always pick a theme. Like, okay, I do maybe draw a breath, um, chi in Chinese and then ki in Japanese. So I can, I can always kind of do things like so I, I, I might like to express it uh, in a soft way, gentle, kind of uh, loving, or I could make it kind of more uh, harsh, kind of confrontational, uh, explosive, and so forth. So um, I don't have any kind of problems about creativity because I'm a calligrapher and then I can always create something and that can uh, express myself or maybe even beyond myself, something deeper than that. So this is always my kind of uh, path of search, you know, how to find something beyond myself, something past. Yes, so that's yeah. That's maybe, and then this, uh, I realized that um, calligraphers in East Asian tradition, we are not supposed to go go back and touch up or go over something. Mm. Uh, we have to be fully present. Of course, we can kind of fail, and we can throw out the painting, and then we can go to another. Uh, sheet of paper. Paper is not so expensive. So uh, that's uh, a good process. We can be maybe not so present, maybe not so mindful, not so kind of uh, good at composition or brush work, but maybe we can kind of uh, increase our uh, presence uh, by maybe doing the same character over and over again. Mm. So you present only one piece, that is, you feel that you are fully there. So that way, I think uh, what I learned as a calligrapher is that for each stroke, we we need to be fully present. That means that we, we should be fully ourselves that hopefully beyond ourselves. So um, then I thought, well, maybe this could be applied for uh, bigger paintings done by one stroke. So I started doing, uh, building uh, big brushes and then doing one stroke paintings, first black and white and then multicolors first on paper and then on canvas. In the meantime, the circle is also 
in the Zen tradition are expressing the completeness of each moment or expressing the presence of the artist. So uh, I started doing that and then I started doing multicolor circles. Let's yes. t let's talk a little bit about this uh, one-stroke painting. That's you write a lot about the one-stroke painting in your book, Brush Mind, which I I just I love this book. Uh, it's just a wellspring of of really uh, wise teachings about uh, what you what you do as a creative uh, person. It sort of takes takes you through different sections about line and the things you talked about about being present and but these one stroke paintings the sort of the idea from what i understand is that it's one stroke one breath one stroke made in sort of one breath could you talk a little bit about how you how you make these paintings yeah traditionally one stroke painting like done by hokusai uh was kind of you use maybe the same brush and then maybe uh, one dip of ink, and then you go uh, up and down, and then do things, and then you can create animals or humans or landscape or something like that. That is one stroke uh, painting. Um, but my kind of idea of one stroke painting is just maybe one line drawn, drawn from one side of the uh, paper or canvas to the other side uh, without moving so much, maybe going up and down a little bit or something, so that maybe it sort of simplifies the, uh, the whole creative process. Maybe the important thing is just maybe the, there is a movement, very simple movement. And then this, with a very simple movement, we need to express something very complex and energetic and some kind of profound meaning. You talk about, uh, there's a quote that I love in your book uh, about profundity and uniqueness. And I'd, I'd like to read it and maybe get your reaction to it or your response to it. Uh, this is the thing that resonates with me. Uh, you say, Profundity and uniqueness, undeniable qualities of outstanding art. Profundity comes largely from discipline, learning techniques, copying ancient works, repeating the same things over and over. Uniqueness comes from freedom, which means to keep on learning from ourselves— discarding things we have learned from others. Here, classical pieces are not the ultimate goal. They are guideposts, sources of inspiration. Yes. So, um, in Eastern, East Asian way of studying calligraphy or even painting, ancient masterpieces are kind of really ahead of us. It's uh, something great and then the more we study the the more we understand the uh, creativity of these artists and then we maybe give up our own ideas and then try to kind of become selfless 
just kind of learning, learning, learning. I'm still doing that, and uh, it's a uh, it's a very good uh, practice. Just kind of uh, be someone's students fully, and then we have many uh, ancient Chinese masters. So next time, maybe I'll be like 13 years younger, and then just be with this master's student, and just copying, copying, copying. Mm. And it's a great process. I think uh, that's how we uh, learn to experience depth, depth of calligraphy. And I think that is a, a wonderful process. And um, but also, I think it will be good to uh, to forget about everything and then um, do something unique. I think most of the Zen paintings or Zen calligraphy, they are uh, they go for profundity, and uh, it's so you know maybe in a way. They talk about the same thing, same phrases, like uh, not possessing anything or not knowing is most intimate, or there are many kind of phrases people use kind of over and over again, mm -hmm. ancient masters' words. And then they do their calligraphy, and then they show their state of understanding. There may be the uh, depth of their their being, <laughs> and uh, these are kind of uh, the heart of Zen calligraphy and paintings that are often revered in the in the tea room. Just reminding of the presence of uh, the ancient master. <laughs> um, but I sometimes, and then of course there is some kind of freedom. Uh, there is some, you know, some masters are maybe, they are all technical, very, you know, master calligraphers, but some are freer, and then some are wild. Hmm. So the wild, maybe calligraphy is kind of regarded as maybe most Zen, like Hakuin is one very good example, very wild. And uh, so they are kind of really revered, but uh, other people are maybe wild, but they are imitating Hakuin's wildness. So not so maybe unique in my mind. Uh, and who are who are some of the other um, th the sort of master calligraphers, ancient master calligraphers? You mentioned Hokusai, and the one you just mentioned, I'm sorry, I didn't catch. Uh, uh, this is Hakuin, 18th century Japanese Zen master, okay. regarded as the restorer of. I'm sorry about this. <laughs> That's okay. Sound. Um, I live in the city, <laughs> Berkeley, California. Um, regarded as a restorer of the Rinzai school of Zen. Okay. Um, when I talk about um, ancient masters calligraphy, they were all Chinese, Chinese masters. One Shiji is uh, fourth century, and maybe from the third century on, 
different uh, masters up to 10th century or later. So these are classical period, post-classical uh, period, uh, great uh, kind of samples of uh, calligraphy. Um, I'd be interested for you to talk a little bit more about the traditional uh, form of the Enso, the the Zen circle symbols that many people mm. would many people would sort of recognize that as a symbol of Zen. Mm. Mm. Uh, and so I want to ask you a bit about about those paintings that you've done and and what this means for you, but also what does the circle in mm. the Zen tradition represent? Well, I think um, maybe in India, I think, uh, you know, this enlightenment was maybe represented by full moon. Hmm. So uh, I think uh, the circle, uh, completeness of uh, our life or our state of mind or practice. Uh, so Chinese... Uh, the master started doing, drawing a circle with a hand or a whisk or, or going around or doing somersault or in kind of in different ways they express their maybe ultimate state of realization with a circle. But uh, as far as I know, there is no uh, Chinese artwork kind of with, with a circle from the ancient times. The earliest one, but Japanese kind of also used, Zen masters used circle with a gesture, uh, like Do uh, Zen master Dogen, 13th century. He was uh, drawing a circle with, with a whisk. And then the, he's saying that the, the experience of the three months practice period is just this, just a circle, hmm. completeness of each moment. And then uh, I think the earliest circle we know is the, by Seshu painter, 14th century. And then after that time, there are many uh, masters who did uh, circle in J Japanese tradition, but always kind of by a male the master with uh, black ink on paper. And in a way, uh, um, in my mind, it's a kind of monotonous. Mm -hmm. kind of, yes. Mm -hmm. But yours but are... But also maybe, you know... No, I'm sorry, go ahead. Um, you know, if we compare uh, kind of like a European tradition, you know, a Giotto, the 14th century Renaissance uh, painter, was regarded as the greatest painter of that time uh, because uh, Pope kind of asked... Uh, painters to submit their work, and then Giotto was regarded as the greatest because he only kind of did a circle with a pen, freehand, but perfect. 
So, you know, that time maybe everyone was trying to express grace of God and then, you know, painting Jesus, Jesus on the cross or Madonna or <coughs> saints. But, you know, Giotto directly kind of symbolizes uh, God's grace. So you can see the kind of almost like a contrast. One is perfect. The other is uh, complete, you know, sometimes closed, sometimes open, but complete means some parts are kind of crooked, some parts are broken, and uh, there is uh, perfection and imperfection altogether. So I think uh, maybe what Zen masters want to express was completeness of each moment, but not perfection. Hmm. And uh, when you make your circles, uh, what is it that, that you are, are uh, experiencing or doing with those in, in the 21st century? Well, um, so we live in the kind of uh, society of people with diverse background, diverse ideas. And uh, I thought it would be good to uh, to have colors, different colors. Mm-hmm. Um, first, maybe I was uh, making a circle for Zen hospice projects. So people who are in the process of dying are housed in, housed in this uh, hospice in San Francisco. So I thought, well, black circle uh, may not be so cheerful for people who are in the process of dying. So I started using colors and then uh, multicolors. So my circle is, uh, and then I kind of developed this idea of pouring paint first on the canvas and then just brushing off once, not going back. So the uh, color, maybe base color, maybe with a brush, but uh, other colors like gold and red uh, may be waiting, you know, so that uh, the colors uh, mix kind of spontaneously. So it sort of has maybe Western elements of having canvas and then uh, acrylic paint and uh, <clears throat> also some maybe composition already there and uh, in a way a brush circle is already drawn and then the East Asian way of brushing it just once decisively and not going back mm-hmm. so we have this maybe uh, merit of these two uh, types of uh, artistic traditions and some of your uh, some of your paintings are quite large and uh, I've I noticed one uh, of yours at the Houston Zen Center that's quite large I think it's a, a white uh, white on a black canvas or black paper mm-hmm. a white mm-hmm. uh, paint and then uh, on the cover of your book on brush mind is uh, I 
a picture of you with a, a very, very large brush. And so I was just cu- sort of curious to know about a little bit about the materials and tools that you use. Um, where, where do you make these big, when you do like the really big circles, do you make your own brushes or how do you, how do you do that? Well, I think uh, maybe the Houston, uh, the one at the Houston's Institute, maybe 30, inch, 30 inches wide, 36 inches high. So these are fairly a small one. Yeah. And then I, I use uh, maybe brushes from China. You know. um, it's big, but it's not too big. Right, <laughs> right. Not compared to the one on the cover of your book, where you're ha- having to clearly yeah, ho- hold it with two. It almost looks like a mop or something that you're. That's working. right. It's um, so yeah. What um, I paint with the mop is not the painting, but it's mopping. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> um, so it's a human-sized brush. And it has a wooden handle, wooden, uh, a kind of ball, upside down ball, and then uh, felt. Felt is kind of so-called bristle, strips of felt. Hmm. And but felt is uh, very soft, too soft. Doesn't have any resilience. So I put uh, some uh, paper board, like an illustration board strips of illustration board uh, inside the kind of maybe uh, it's like a envelope mm-hmm. of strips of uh, white felt. Hmm. So we use that. <clears throat> so for wider kind of lines, I would uh, make a brush with a stick, wooden stick, uh, holding, but also another stick is uh, kind of horizontal to the, uh, parallel to the uh, floor. And then I staple, these are all my uh, studio assistant's work, but we staple felt with uh, illustration board. So we can kind of go one way Sort of moving, and uh, usually I have like a seven feet by six feet canvas on the floor of my studio. So I have maybe five or six pieces primed and waiting for me, and then I could pour paint and uh, and then kind of sweep sweep off painting horizontally or vertically or with some waves or something like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And of course, I'm kind of up and down a little bit, so different pressure and different colors are waiting for me. Yeah. So, for example, I could do like uh, ocean and then, you know, kind of blue paint, maybe sometimes gold or silver waiting maybe two types of blue paints, and then we can just paint. And sometimes maybe we can have a large one-stroke painting, but also I can have two um, paintings. So maybe 
half a stroke painting, two half stroke paintings can be done uh, in one motion. So uh, one of the things that you do is present uh, calligraphy workshops and um, all over the world, really. And I, I sort of wonder if, um, what is it that you do in a workshop setting? Say I went to one of your workshops. What is a, what is a typical sort of workshop on calligraphy? Well, um, I prepare um, worksheets. So like maybe... Uh, ten sheets. Each sheet has one character that uh, with three different styles, uh, most uh, common styles, formal script, semi-cursive script, and cursive script. And uh, these are all taken from uh, ancient Chinese masterpieces. So uh, we ask people to study closely and then reproduce as faithfully as possible. First without any instruction, and then later I'll give some instructions. So um, that way, uh, this is the most advanced actually practice in Chinese or East Asian calligraphy, uh, studying ancient masterpieces. Usually in Japan, people have to uh, study for some years until the master says, okay, now you can do some uh, close study of uh, ancient masters. Pick maybe one sample and then do it. Try to kind of study that way. But um, in my workshop, we start with the uh, most advanced practice. So, you know, even our copying is not so great. Uh, and the sample uh, masterpieces are great. So in a way, it's uh, we, we can create fairly good pieces and then kind of enjoy it. Mm -hmm. And this is a kind of developing gentle creativity. You don't need to be so creative. You can just copy it. And then, uh, then uh, maybe interpret it, and then make making it more expressive. So in a way, it's a very gentle process. And then people who haven't done artwork since, uh, you know, primary school, these people can enjoy it. And I I believe that everyone has been developing judgments, you know, mm. in society, whatever uh, work they do. So actually, you know, people can learn a great deal in a short time. But I think the important thing is not really learning the kind of techniques and then creating beautiful pieces, but maybe facing ourselves, learning to face ourselves. You know, we... We're all critical and then kind of unhappy about the result. And this is very common, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I'm so bad, I can't do that. And then I think uh, the important thing is that we should learn to enjoy each line, whether it is good or not good. Just, just enjoy the 
fact that we are drawing lines together is just so wonderful. The fact that we are breathing is uh, miraculous. So just enjoy. And in a way, so that way, maybe instead of uh, saying, okay, I can be very ecstatic when I draw a beautiful line. No, we can be happy each time. Doesn't matter, you know. We don't have to wait till uh, we draw beautiful lines. We'll draw beautiful lines anyway. We should just kind of enjoy the process. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah I've always, uh, I, that's one of the things that I have learned from uh, from Zen is to be present with whatever it is that you're doing. And, um, you know, when I first met Galen at uh, the Zen Center in Houston, uh, I went to one of the introduction classes that they have there. And um, mm-hmm. afterwards, I, I spoke with her and I was telling her that I was a musician. And, and she says, well, you already have a practice, you know, uh, and sitting meditation is, is wonderful and can, and you know, can help in other ways. But, uh, but you already have a, a sort of an extension of that practice that you can start working with right away. And, um, mm-hmm. and I, I thought that was interesting and I've been, I've been work, you know, working with that and thinking about it and, and trying to figure out how that, um, how that sort of resonates in, in a creative life, you know, this, uh, right, this sort of right. the extension of Zen and meditation and how that sort of can show up in your other artistic practices. So how does, uh, Zen meditation help you in your like music uh it it makes me it it has made me slow down um and it also has helped me to focus uh in a way that only well how can i describe so before i was sitting i think i would practice technique Uh, all musicians have to practice technique on some level and so as a percussionist, we, we do an exercise called stick control, and it's just sort of the basic strokes of, of drumming. And mm-hmm. so before meditation, I would practice that, but I would be very distracted. And, you know, I would be thinking about all the things, oh, I've got to make sure I've got to go to the grocery store, I've got to put gas in my car, I've got to whatever. You know, I was making lists in my head of things and or just being distracted, thinking about why well, I'd really like to just go and relax and have a nice, you know, cup of coffee, uh, you know, not being where I, not being present. Mm-hmm. So if I had to, I guess if I had to articulate it f- for you now, it would be that it, it has allowed me to sort of be, be more present with what I'm doing. So now uh-huh. I can take that same exercise and I can just do that. I don't worry about what's happening later or what I'd rather be doing. I just try to be in the activity of the moment. And, um, and that has really helped me a lot. And as a teacher, I find that it really helps my students and they identify instantly with this idea of, okay, when you go into the practice room as a musician, you know, you're going to be distracted and you're going to think of all these other things that maybe you would, you know, it never fails that you get into the practice room and you're working and you think, gosh, I'd rather be doing anything but this. And then, <laughs> you, and then you get home and you're sitting and, uh, you know, wh- whatever, drinking a cup of coffee, watching a movie, and you're thinking to yourself, you know what, I really should be practicing. 
<laughs> and all the students, you know, they just nod their heads. Yes, yes, of course. Of course that's how it is because we, you know, it's just, I think, human nature to um, to be distracted in that way, you know, especially when you're dealing with something that's not easy, like playing the snare drum or sitting sitting uh, meditation. It's not easy. And so often it, it's uh, like you know, there's this distraction that comes up. So it's just allowed me to kind of watch my mind a little bit more and and to be focused and not so distracted. That's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Do you notice more kind of like small differences, kind of uh, your like sound and... Uh, uh, yeah. yeah, I think I think so. I think that it's uh, the, the kind of... Um, presence of mind that you have uh, when you practice this way allows you um, that kind of focus to hear more deeply um, mm-hmm. and certainly when you're when you're playing a te- and, and this is you know mostly when I'm thinking of this mostly now when uh, of technique exercises you know because mm-hmm. they're very repetitive and it can it's very easy to sort of not pay attention or check sort of, you know, check out when, when one is doing these kinds of things. And in performance, it's maybe a different, a slightly different story. But I would say that uh, with regard to technical practice, definitely uh, my, my ears are more open and, and I'm more sensitive to the sensations of, and, and percussion, what I do is very tactile. You know, you hold this, you're very much in touch with the sticks or in touch with the instruments. You're feeling the vibrations, you're responding to that um, in, re, you know, in real time and you're thinking about time passing and, and regularity and all of those sorts of things. So yeah, I, I think for sure. Uh, I, I'm sort of curious about performance and how it's, uh, how this sort of thinking um, or practice shows up in a performance. I think, I'm not sure I could articulate that for you, uh, but I think it's probably not not so different from when you are making calligraphy except it lasts maybe it lasts a little longer <laughs> but there's the there's the immediacy of it you know and you're responding to the you know the the moment and uh, so yeah i think there may be some some parallels uh, there do you think some of the audience will notice the difference well i'd like to think i'd like to think so Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly audiences respond to good performers, mm-hmm. and if this practice uh, allows you to be a better performer or helps you to be more in the moment, that I think maybe mm-hmm. audience would would under would pick up on that. There's something uh, there's something that I've noticed about longtime Zen practitioners uh, that I've been around. I've had you know I've been around Galen some, and then. Uh, you know, when other people have visited the center, like Reb Anderson, for instance, I remember at Galen's mountain seat ceremony, Reb Anderson sat perfectly still for, it must have been two hours, <laughs> you know, and he didn't flinch, didn't move. And uh, I distinctly remember I, that to still to this day resonates with me as like one of the most powerful. It wasn't a performance, okay? It was just him being who he is. But um, but it was amazing, you know, just the sense of, of uh, that sense that he was able to sit for so long and be <laughs> perfectly still. But then afterwards, I remember uh, I, I played the drum in her ceremony 
And um, afterwards, after everything was over and everyone was sort of milling around and, and, and talking, Reb came up to me and I could sort of, uh, you know, I saw him coming from across the yard and he was, he, he had his sort of gaze sort of focused on me. And there is definitely something there <laughs> that I recognize as being uh, just an incredible focus. And I see that with, with uh, Zen people, uh, you know, often I see that. And with Galen has that same sort of thing she can just focus. With Galen, I always notice her hands when she's folding a paper or uh, with a something with a book. You know, she has very sort of this tactile sense about her that I always notice. Um, anyway, that but yeah, I think... I think definitely um, I pick up on on those kinds of things. Do you do you see that, or am I unique unique in seeing that? Or yeah, I I, um, I see that, appreciate that. Also, I appreciate Tiknatan, uh, this kind of visiting San Francisco Zen Center, and they said, said this is Olympic Zen. He, he says this is Olympic, what do you say? Olympic Zen. <laughs> <laughs> Olympic Zen at the San Francisco Zen Center. <laughs> uh, you know, I think uh, we could be more relaxed and <laughs> more human, I think. You know, uh-huh. This is my own kind of uh, preference. Uh-huh. But I understand, I know, I, uh, I kind of I met a great Zen master in Japan, and then, you know, their bowing is just, I mean, you know, I was just a kid, and then this guy kind of a nationally well-known Zen master bowed, and we, you know, we just say goodbye. But he, his bow was so deep and so much with presence, and I was so kind of blown away. So, you know, I mean, kind of one bowing can change people's life. Yeah. And you know, one uh, so the, the presence of the the master. Um, <clears throat> so I have kind of deep appreciation, but also I I feel why don't we relax more? <laughs> <laughs> I like that idea too. Uh, I like that idea very much. And you know, I think somebody that I really enjoy reading, and I just only got to meet him this year, is Brad Warner, and I think he's sort of. Uh, would agree with you, maybe. I can't, I'm not going to put words in his mouth, but he seems like a very relaxed person, you know, but mm-hmm. also very deep and uh, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, focused on on what what he's doing. But um, yeah. yeah, I think uh, he represents kind of new generation of uh, people who are sort of uh, more maybe open and creative and. And wild. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. No, yes. I. Uh, in fact, it was it was actually one of Brad's books that that brought me to the the practice. Actually, I read his book um, Hardcore Zen uh, many years ago. Now, I guess it was close to when it came out. Anyway, uh, mm-hmm. and that's what kind of uh, pushed me towards uh, wanting to find out a little bit more. Well, that and uh, you know I. Uh, I always read about Zen Buddhism through John Cage, 
I because I mm. when I was a student music student I, I played a lot of his music and read his books mm. and mm. he would always mention DT Suzuki and Zen Buddhism and so I'd always sort of follow uh, mm-hmm. the references and things that that Cage would talk about. Did you have uh, do you have any experience with with John Cage? Was he a figure that you were aware of when you came to the states in the seventies or even in Japan? Was that was that a name that you knew or? Yeah, I uh, I was aware of him. I think in a way it's interesting, you know. Uh, D.T. Suzuki was saying at uh, Columbia University that uh, Zen is about freedom. And then, you know, I mean, this is a very uh, uh, grossly simplified statement. <laughs> <laughs> you know, freedom from what, you know, what does it mean, you know, freedom? And, uh, but you know, like uh, John Cage just took it in his own way and then sort of, oh, freedom, you know, maybe freedom from scores and, and you know, and all these maybe formats and everything. So he uh, kind of dis- disassembled everything in a way. That created uh, really a, a very inspiring kind of Zen. Uh, art or than music. But uh, I think it just came from a misunderstanding. Hmm. Interesting. Well, there is, uh, there's a book that came out recently that uh, I haven't uh, finished it yet. I've only just uh, started to read it, but it's been highly recommended about John Cage. It's called Where the Heart Beats, and it's about John Cage and his sort of involvement with Zen Buddhism. Have you, do you know this book? Have you heard of it? No. Anyway, it talks about um, Los Angeles in the 1930s and Cage's sort of introduction to Buddhism. It's a terrific book about uh, John Cage, Zen Buddhism, and the Inner Life of Artists is the uh, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. title. Well, let's see. We've got just—I don't want to take up too much of your time. Uh, Maybe we should think about wrapping up soon. Okay. I usually like to close the show by getting advice or guidance or wisdom on living and sustaining a creative life for people that are interested in in that uh, as a as a profession maybe or as just a way of living. So what what would you say? Well, I think you know a lot of uh, kind of outstanding artists were uh, kind of hurting themselves, their mind, and body, being suicidal, and so forth. And we have so many uh, examples from the East and West. I think, uh, so one idea is, you know, okay, there is some idea that maybe to, to create a great art, you need to sacrifice your life. And uh, um, <clears throat> maybe you need to bring yourself some extra ultra state of mind by getting some uh, substances and doing something strange and so forth. And um, I think it's just a kind of misunderstanding. So, you know, I admire so many. Uh, people um, like 
kawabata oa in Japan dazai oa uh, Aktagawa. These are great, great writers. And then, um, and then also in the U.S., uh, um, you know, people kill themselves or they're being depressed. And then, um, so in a way, it was kind of uh, ironic that they achieved what they wanted, their recognitions, and then, uh, but they're not happy. So. Um, I think uh, we have to kind of tell ourselves that maybe our happiness is uh, most important. You know? Just to be healthy, to have healthy mind and healthy body, healthy lifestyle, and uh, then we can create something uh, that uh, speak to ourselves. And then that would be uh, wonderful. I think, uh, yeah, our health and our happiness, I think for anybody, are most important. And I, I just have one more question. That's terrific advice. Where does the, uh, where does the spiritual aspect of making art come into play? Well, I think uh, the art can be uh, just only uh, pleasing, you know, uh, beautiful, and uh, making other people delighted. Um, maybe another way of the art is to be uh, deeper, deeper than our own kind of self, our own worldview, and something we don't know, you know. Maybe uh, we cannot, something we cannot explain could be felt through the uh, artwork. Maybe that makes the art spiritual, I think. Wonderful. Kazuaki, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you, John. It was nice It's been nice talking to you. And with that, we conclude this episode of Standing in the Stream, Conversations with Creatives. Again, I'm your host, John Lane. You can follow me on Twitter, at ThatJohnLane. You can find the show links and show notes on my website, john-lane.com, and follow the show on Facebook. Simply search for Standing in the Stream. Thanks to Danny Clay for our theme music. You can find him online at dclaymusic.com. I'll be back next time for more conversations with creatives. Thanks for listening.